Ignacio Mark Asperus. I know it's a name that probably means nothing to any of you guys, but he is a guy who came up with an invention a few years back, several years ago as a matter of fact, and he tried for about five years to get a patent for his invention. He started somewhere in 2006, and then finally in 2011, the government granted him a patent, patent number 8011991B2, and the title was How to Facilitate the Construction of a Snowman, and there's a picture I brought. <laughs> he actually got a patent with instructions explaining how to build a snowman. Now listen, there are a lot of things in life that I need help with. And I know we don't live in the north, and we don't have a lot of snow, but one of the things that I think I've got under control pretty well is how to build a snowman. I think I can figure that out. Get with the kids in the yard, and between us, the five of us, if Mandy helps the six of us, I think we can manage building a snowman. On the other hand, there are a lot of things in my life that I do need help with. Building my life the way God wants, building my family, building my home. If you're a business owner, building a business, building a career, building his church, God's church. How do we build his church? How do we build his kingdom? Those are things that we need help with. And that is exactly why we are in the series that we're in in Nehemiah called the Nehemiah Project. And if you'll remember, the purpose of this series or what we learn in this series is that the study of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem teaches us how God wants to build our lives, his church, and his kingdom. We all need help with that. Those are important things. God is a building God, and what we learn is that he is building our lives, or he wants to build our lives his way, and he has instructions for that. The best life that we can find, the best life we can experience is the life that God builds. The blessed life is only found. A life of meaning and purpose is only found in building my life his way, building his kingdom, and not my own kingdom my way. So we want to build our lives his way, his kingdom his way, and he gives us instructions on how to do just that in his word, specifically in the book of Nehemiah. 400 years, as a review, 400 years before Jesus comes, we have this story of Nehemiah, a great story in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. And this time in the book of Nehemiah is the post-exilic period. The nation of Israel had been in exile for 70 years. After that 70 years, they were allowed to come back. A remnant returns to Israel, to Jerusalem, and finds that the city's in ruins. The walls have been torn down. The gates have been burned. The temple's been destroyed. They come back. They begin the work of rebuilding. They get sidetracked. They stop. The city is still pretty much, the temple eventually gets built, but the city is still pretty much in the same condition when Nehemiah finds out about it. Nehemiah is a layman, a cupbearer to the king. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. But God calls this layman to go back to Jerusalem and lead in rebuilding the city for God's glory. He gives him a burden to rebuild the city. And he is willing to do, Nehemiah is willing to do what God asks. And that's where we learn, as we talked about last week, what one person who's sold out to God, who's committing to doing God's work, God's way, what one person can do for the kingdom of God. 
Nehemiah, again, he's the cupbearer to the king. And don't think butler, okay? If you're joining us today, don't think that this is just a butler. You know, he just, he's a servant. He is a servant, but it's an important job to the king. He's trusted by the king. The king trusts him with his life. He is an advisor to the king when the king wants advice. He's got to be ready to do that. He has to be educated. He had to be a good-looking guy to stand next to the king as much as he did. He had to be able to advise the king on court procedure and things of that nature. So this is an important job. He's living the lifestyle of luxury in the palace. And one day, his brother Hanani comes back from Jerusalem, and he asks Hanani, how are things in Jerusalem? Hanani gives him that report. The walls are a rubble pile. If you'll remember, the walls speak of separation, distinction, identity. The gates are burned. The gates speak of authority, power. So the city has no distinction. They're supposed to be God's people. There's no separation. There's no distinction. There's no authority and power in their lives. But if you'll recall, the number one thing that breaks Nehemiah's heart is that the glory of God is in reproach. People are laughing at God. They're making fun of God because of the condition of God's people and the condition of his city. This breaks Nehemiah's heart. And he prays one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible. And the summary of that prayer is this. God, use me for your glory. Use me for your glory. He wants to be a part of the solution. So you go from chapter 1 to chapter 2. About four months pass. So what does Nehemiah do during those four months? He prays. He plans. He waits on the Lord. He waits for an opportunity to ask the king to leave. We talked about that last week. So he begins that journey from Susa to Jerusalem. It's about a two-month journey. It takes a long time. He travels. He gets to the city of Jerusalem. And when he gets to the city of Jerusalem, the first thing that he wants to do is to get a lay of the land to assess the situation, to find out are things really as bad as Hanani said they were. And so he does just that. He takes time to rest from the trip first, which he needs to do. But then he discovers that there are some leaders in the area nearby that aren't real thrilled with his plan to rebuild the city. So what he does, he needs to assess the situation. What he decides to do is he goes out in the middle of the night and walks that two-mile trek all the way around the city where the wall used to be. He looks at the situation and finds that it is exactly the way Hannah and I described it. The city's a mess. The city's in ruins, destruction, the people are in bad shape because of the condition of this city. And then he also finds, as I mentioned, that there are people in the area that don't want him to get started. So he does this at night not to arouse their suspicion. But he's taking time. He's looking at the situation. And what we learn here is that a good leader, and this is something that's hard for all of us, a good leader does not rush into doing the Lord's work. A good leader takes time to look at the situation, to learn about the situation, to gather the facts before he acts. And that's what he does. A, le a good leader knows when to plan, when to speak, and when to work. Nehemiah has planned. He's about to speak up to the people to share his heart and his vision. And then he's going to begin the work that God has called him to do. He calls the people together. They have to face the facts. He shares with them his heart. They all need to understand the seriousness of the situation they're in so that they will allow God to begin the work through them that needs to take place. He calls them together, and here's what's going on here, okay? 
In this, in this passage today that we're going to look at, here's what's going on. And this is so very important for us as we begin a new chapter of ministry together. What do we do in discipleship? What do we do in building our homes? What do we do in building the church and building the kingdom of God? How do we get from the call that God places on us to begin the work to actually beginning the work? Because you can get stuck in the middle if you're not careful. That's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. They are at a standstill. How do we get, it's that in-between time, what do we do to get from God calling us to begin the work to actually starting the work of building our lives, building his church, and building his kingdom? That's what we want to look at this morning as we look in Nehemiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 17. These are the instructions on how to build. First, Nehemiah teaches us that we need to cast a vision and that leadership, we cast a vision after honest evaluation of the building situation. You got to know your mission field. Now there are, uh, there is a mission for the church, a mission for God's church that's universal. Okay. We love God, love people, share Jesus, make disciples. That in a nutshell is what we're called to do. All right. Biblically. But in terms of a particular mission field, you got to know the mission field and you got to know the situation before you can cast a vision that is unique to that situation. And that's what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 17. He said to them, You see the bad situation? He's already walked around the city. He knows the situation. He's heard it and now he's seen it with his own eyes. You see the bad situation that we are in that Jerusalem is desolate and the gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall. Here's the vision. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah's done his investigation. He's walked through the city. He's seen the situation. And here again, this is so important. He's saying, we and us and you and them. Just like in his prayer, if you'll recall in chapter one, just like in his prayer, he's identifying himself with the people. He's saying this is our problem. This is our work that we have to do together. So he calls everyone together and he does it because they all need to face the facts. They need to face the brutal facts of the situation. The people are in, are in distress. Jerusalem is a wasteland. The walls are a rubble pile. The gates have been burned. The glory of God is in reproach. And they need to understand the seriousness. And hey, we all, need to come to a realization of the condition of the world around us. We need to understand the city, not just this city, but yes, this city is in distress. There's no distinction in the church. Statistically, there's no difference between those who claim to be followers of Christ and those who don't. Statistically, it's been shown that there really is no difference in those two groups' lifestyles. There's no separation. There's no distinction. There's no authority in the church anymore. The glory of God is in reproach. The city is in distress. We need to understand the seriousness. We need to evaluate. Listen, we need to evaluate everything. We need to evaluate our ministries. We need to evaluate our families. We need to evaluate our jobs. We need to evaluate our homes. Everything. Are we doing the work that God has called us to do? Because the city is in distress. The glory of God is in reproach. Our situation, if you'll remember, two weeks ago we talked about this. In the Southern Baptist Church alone, in the past 10 years, we've lost a million members. 
I mean, statistics are at 70 to 75 percent. Some say even 80 percent of Southern Baptist churches are plateaued or on the decline. We have people, again, the statistics, no difference between those who claim to be Christian and those who don't in their lifestyles. The Christians are living the way that the world is. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. But that's not the way it looks when you look at the statistics, the lifestyles of those who claim to be followers of Christ. The condition of our country, we're the third largest mission field in the world behind China and India. We're the number one most diversified country in the world. All right, we've got more nationalities, more tongues, more people groups, 488 people groups in this country alone. 84 of those groups are unreached. They don't know Christ. Millions of people don't know Jesus. Over 3,000 groups around the world are unreached. They don't know Christ. Over 230 million people around the world don't know Jesus Christ. Hey, folks, the city's in distress. The glory of God is in reproach. And either we face the facts and we understand that there's work to be done and we get busy doing, rebuilding the city of God, the glory of God, giving him glory, or it's going to continue to be that way. That's what the the nation of Israel had to realize. They had to realize the city was broken. The glory of God was in reproach. There was an officer by the name of Ray Bartz. A couple years ago, a news story came out. Ray Bartz, was, he was doing something, and he had to pull out his license. And I'm not going to try to get mine out because it sticks in here. But he pulled out his license, and he looked at it, and he saw that his license was expired. Now, he's a police officer. So here's what he did. He pulls out his ticket book, and he writes himself a ticket. Now, that is honesty. Nobody was around. Somebody found out about it and wrote an article about it, but he did that. Why did he do that? Because the reality was he was breaking the law, and if he was going to do his job properly, he had to write himself a ticket. Folks, the reality is the glory of God is in reproach. The nation, the city's a mess, and either we face it and allow God to begin the work that he wants to begin, or things are going to continue the same way that they are. You know, and, and, you know, I hate, I don't, I don't like being critical, but I'm just going to share with you one of my pet peeves. You know, I'm on social media because it's a great way for me to keep up with folks in the church and people that I love. And I don't post a whole lot. You'll figure that out. But what I do, one of my pet peeves on social media, and you see it all the time. Now I'm talking about the condition of Christians, but I love the church. I do. That's why I'm one of the reasons I'm a pastor. God called me to be a pastor. I love the church or I wouldn't be here today. But one of my pet peeves is people that get on Facebook and post these articles, 52 reasons why the church is dying. Everything that's wrong with the church today. And you read through that article and never, not not in one place do you find them offering a solution to the problem. They point out what's wrong and and why they think it's wrong. And usually they're they're not completely right, okay, but I'm not going to go down that road. They'll point out what's wrong. They want to be a part of pointing out the problem, but they don't want to be a part of the solution. Hey, you can come to me all day long with problems, all right? I know that's a crazy thing to say, but you can come to me with problems and point them out all day. But what you're going to find is is that together, the next step is going to be, okay, how do we find a solution? That's going to be my response. It's okay to point out the problems. Nehemiah points out the problem. Okay, he is brutally honest about the situation, but what's his next step? He says, here's how we fix it. 
Here's the solution. He's not only pointing out the problems, he wants to be a part of the solution. And he talks about, Nehemiah says, he cast a vision, come, here's how we solve the problem. Let's rebuild the walls so that once again, we can give glory to God so that the glory of God will no longer be in reproach. The message is bad, but he turns it to the positive. In verses 17 through 20, he focuses on the glory of God. We can rebuild the city, and once again, we will give glory to God. That's what he's saying. God had already proven in Nehemiah's life, he had proven his hand was on it. Remember, last week we closed. The hand of God was on him. The king had provided him with everything that he needed to rebuild, to get there, and the materials to rebuild it. God God worked in this pagan king to provide for his needs. So by sharing his story, it was Nehemiah's personal burden for Jerusalem and his experience with the Lord that he shared with the people that won the people over. That convinced them that it was time to build. It was the right time to build. God's hand was on Nehemiah's life and his mission. And this is where we learn number two, God's hand on us moves our hands to do God's work. Remember, God's hand was on his life. We talked about last week. If you want to do the work of God, two things. First of all, your life has to be in his hands. You've got to be his. And second of all, his hand has to be on what you're doing. If you want to succeed in kingdom work, if you want to build the kingdom of God, your life has to be in his hands, and his hands has to be on what you're doing. And it had already proven, been proven, that God's hand was on Nehemiah. Look at verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, he shared with them, hey, look, look at everything God's already done. His hand is in this. And their response, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the work. God's hand was on them, so they put their hands to doing his work. It's to the credit of the Jews, the nobles, the leaders, that this guy from the outside comes in and says, hey, this is what God's doing. It's to their credit that they recognize the situation and that they began doing the work. Now look back at verse 17. There are two words that I want to focus in on. The words, you see. You see. Nehemiah had to come in and explain to them once again, describe the situation. He walks the two miles around the city. He's got a first-hand account of the condition of the city. And then he begins to describe for them the condition of the city, the walls, the gates. Now think about this. Some of these people, now the Jews went into exile, but there was still a small remnant that stayed there for that entire 70 years, they and their families. They, they had been living in this mess, some of them, for almost 100 years, their families. And those that had come back, it had been almost a decade since that had happened. They had begun the work. They get, finally got the temple rebuilt, but the city was still a mess. All they had to do was walk out their front door, and they could see the walls were a mess, and the gates had been burned. So why in the world did Nehemiah have to describe for them the condition of the city? It's because they had been living there so long, they had just become accustomed to it. They were numb to the condition of the city around them. Folks, it's a danger that we as believers living in the world, we're to be in the world but not of the world, but it is so dangerous if we're not careful, we'll become so accustomed to the culture that we won't even see that the glory of God is in reproach. We won't recognize. We'll just be numb to the situation. We'll just adapt to the culture. You think maybe that's happened with believers in our culture today? 
We've got to be careful. Nehemiah had to bring them together and say, hey, guys, open your eyes again. Our hearts need to be thawed to the condition of the culture around us, just as the peoples did. And that's what Nehemiah does. He shares his vision with passion. Remember, he was living the lifestyle of luxury. He turns his back on the palace. He goes to the broken city. And Nehemiah is now motivating the people. He's sharing with them his motivation. Here's his motivation. Number one, have a passion for God's glory. We've already established that. What broke his heart the most. Now, he, he was broken for the condition of the people. He was sorry. And he hurt for the condition of his people. But what broke his heart the most was that the glory of God was in in reproach. And number two, we need to have faith as we have God's favor. As we've seen, Nehemiah, he points to how God's worked in his life. He's saying, hey guys, God's hand is on my life. Look what he's already done to get me here. He used this pagan king to provide for everything that we need. You know, one of the things that I've learned in my life and in my ministry is that when Christians see God's hand at work in other people's lives, it motivates them. It's exciting, and, it's, it, it, and it moves people to work, and that's what happens here. It moves people to work. This is him motivating them, and look at their response. I love it. He, get, he lays it out, and their response, plain and simple. All right, let's do it. Let's arise, and let's build. We, we've been asleep. We've, we've been numb to the situation, but this is serious. We've got to rebuild. We want the glory of God to return Let's arise and let's build. And they said, and listen, again, I'm not trying to jump up and down on anybody, but I've heard it too many times. They didn't say, hey, we've tried this before and it didn't work, which was true, by the way. They had tried to rebuild the walls and it didn't work. They didn't say that. And why did they not say that? Because it wasn't applicable here. This was God's timing. Didn't matter if it didn't work before. This was God's time for this to happen. And if it's God's timing, if he's in it, his hand is on it, then it's the right time. And so they said, let's arise and build. What are we building in our lives? It's God's hand on the work. We're going to face all sorts of criticisms. We haven't done it that way before. We've tried it before. Let's just, let's just keep the status quo. Let's not rock the boat. But sometimes God wants to rock the boat just a little bit. And when God says to begin building, you have to begin building. We see that phrase. There's a phrase, good work. And hey, this, isn't, this is a little self-serving, okay? But I'm going to say it anyway. So hopefully y'all will forgive me. It's important to note that God called a leader from the outside in. Someone who wasn't living in the midst of the city. Sometimes God brings somebody in to give a fresh perspective. Now listen, I'm going to be the first to tell you that I'm not the smartest man in the world, and I don't have all the answers, but I can provide a little different perspective. And sometimes that's what it takes, and that's what Nehemiah does. He just brings a fresh perspective to the situation, and they listen, and they respond, and they begin to build. And then he talks about the good work, that phrase, good work. It's all over the New Testament. I love that phrase. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to help me this morning. Y'all remember the old days when you used to do responsive reading? We're not going to do that again, okay? But for right now, I want y'all to help me, all right? We're going to read some verses, and every time I point to you, I want you to say good work. So if you're asleep, wake up for just a minute, then you can go right back to sleep, all right? So when I point to you, I want you to say good work. All right, we're going to start Matthew 5, 16. Get ready. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for which God prepared beforehand so that we, may, we would walk in them. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing that He who began a will perfect it, in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then Colossians 1.10 So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Timothy 6.18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in, to be generous and ready to share. The good work of Jesus Christ, hear me, the good work of Jesus Christ was dying on the cross for a sinner like me. Now my good work is to engage the lost culture for his glory and with his gospel. That's the good work that we're called to do. The good work of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The people respond. They're excited about the work, what God is doing. And then in verse 19, we will learn that bold decisions and actions for God will always bring opposition. That's number three. Bold decisions and actions for God will always bring opposition. If you are serving the Lord and you are doing his work, the enemy is going to oppose you, plain and simple. You might as well get ready for attacks. Look at verse 19. Three enemies rise up here, but Samballot, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it. They mocked us and they despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, of course, we know he's not the Persian king, all right? He's got permission, but nobody else there heard that firsthand. So they're accusing him of leading a rebellion against the king. I answered them, Nehemiah said, I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Three specific enemies. You've got Sanballat from Beth Haran. That's about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. Tobiah is an Ammonite, okay? And he's an enemy of the nation of Israel. And then you've got Geshem, who is an Arabian. Don't know a whole lot about him, except that he's an Arabian, and he's formed an alliance with these other two guys. Now, Sanballat, he's kind of the, the head, the chief enemy, okay? He's the one leading the op- opposition here. And then you've got uh, Tobiah, who just simply by being an Ammonite, he was automatically an enemy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we see why. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you uh, Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So they were enemies. Just by being uh, an Ammonite, he's an enemy. So and not, not just that, he's also related by marriage to some people in Jerusalem. So here, just for the purpose of understanding as an analogy, you've got the leader of the pack, you know, Sanballat. He's the head of the opposition, the head of the army, so to speak. If he's the head, 
then Tobiah, he's the head of intelligence, okay? He's got people on the inside that he can influence, and he can spread some of these, these mistruths, these lies about Nehemiah. And then you've got Geshem, who, for all we know, he's some leader of an Arabian tribe, but nonetheless, he's joined forces. He's got people that he influences nearby the city of Jerusalem, and they're all opposing Nehemiah and the work that he's trying to do. The minute that God's people stand up and make a decision to build the kingdom of God, the enemy is going to stand up in opposition. Bottom line, the enemy is going to oppose any work that God calls us to do if we are faithful and if we determine to do it. And the reason is building for the Lord and battling the enemy runs side by side. We're in spiritual warfare and it's real. It's God's fight. He provides the power and the resources, Ephesians 6. We've got to depend on him, but we've got to stay committed. We can't give up. We cannot let the enemy. Their first strategy is laughter and lies. They attempt to use ridicule to sidetrack Nehemiah. It's been said that ridicule is the weapon of one who has no other. (laughs) They didn't have anything to throw against him, so they just ridicule him. They make fun of the city. They make fun of him. They accuse him of rebelling against the king. This is what they come up with. Just about everyone who's accomplished anything for the kingdom of God had to face ridicule along the way. I mean, Jesus himself was ridiculed while he walked the earth. He was mocked while, while he was on the cross. He faced ridicule. The people of God in the New Testament acts, the church at Pentecost, Pentecost, the Jews said, these guys must be drunk. They're crazy. Paul, I mean, he was accused of being a madman. Festus said, told Paul he was out of his mind in Acts chapter 26. If you want to, you can turn on the news. You can look at television. You can look at pop culture. And they make fun of us all the time. Christians are mocked every day. If you don't have another weapon, you come up with things and you ridicule people. I mean, it's, it's what bullies do. You just make fun of people. If you, can't, if you don't have anything else to throw at them, if you don't like them. But I love Nehemiah's response, verse 20. So I answered them and I said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. He's already, his hand is on this. He's already proven it. He will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. Now think about what he could have done. He could have ignored them, and sometimes that's the best thing to do. You know, sometimes people are critical. They, you know, they make comments, and sometimes you just got to ignore them, okay? Don't even give them a platform. But he's the new guy in town. He's trying to encourage the people to get busy doing the work, and he needs to prove once and for all that God's hand is on this, and so he has to stand up. Had Nehemiah ignored these men who were important, by the way, everybody knew who they were. They were important. And remember, Tobiah has people on the inside. Had he ignored them, then they, would have just, they wouldn't have gone away. They would have just become a bigger problem. He could have de- debated them. He could have engaged them and, and, and debated them to prove why they were wrong and he was right. But you know, sometimes that's not the greatest idea either. You have to be careful in serving the Lord. There's always going to be somebody that has some pet doctrine, some pet whatever, that wants to hijack you and take you aside and spend three hours trying to convince you why the King James Version is the only correct version, okay? 
Or they're, they're trying to convince you why this, this belief that's debatable or this truth in the Bible that's debatable is the most important thing in the world. And what's going to happen if you let them take up all your time, you're going to end up swatting at gnats with a sledgehammer. And you're going to get distracted from the kingdom work, okay? And that's what, that's what these guys are trying to do. And had Nehemiah engaged these people and let them consume him, he would have been distracted by debating them from the work that God had called him to do. you got to be careful. People, there are, Satan will use people to try to distract you from the work with things that seem like they're important, when in the grand scheme of things, they're not worth the time and effort you have to put into them. In his reply, Nehemiah makes three things clear, okay? He says, rebuilding the wall was God's work, all right? Number two, the Jews were God's people, God's chosen people, called to do that work for his glory. And number three, those folks had no right, no place in the work of God because they were not God's people and they were not called by God. Here's what he says. He says, listen, this is God's work. We are God's people called to do God's work. And I know you guys all do respect, but y'all don't have any part in this. It's not your place. He just, he speaks to the situation plain and simple. He's honest. He's not mean. He's not hurtful, but he's honest. You guys have no place in this. This is God's work and he will do it. Sometimes leaders have to negotiate, but there are other times where leaders have to stand up. They have to take a stand and they have to speak the truth to the opposition that they face. We're going to sum up what's happened in this in-between time. We talked about this is the in-between time. God's called them to work. They haven't begun the work yet. What's happened in the in-between time? First of all, you need to know your mission. You got to know your mission. Nehemiah knew his mission to rebuild the walls, plain and simple. You got to have a passion for that mission. Are you passionate about doing God's work God's way? He was passionate. The glory of God was in reproach. He was passionate. You have to evaluate. Evaluate the situation. We need to look at where we are, what we're doing. We need to evaluate the ministries, our lives, everything in our lives. That's what he did. He evaluated the situation. And then with motivation, he cast a vision. Once you know the mission, once you've looked at the mission field, once you have evaluated, you've got a passion for it, you've got to cast a vision for where you're going. That's what we're going to be doing over the next few months. As I get to know you, you get to know me. We're going to have a leadership seminar here in a few, few months. We're going to talk about what the direction of the church is, what I believe God's vision for us is. And the more I know about the mission field, the more specific that's going to get. We together, the leadership, all of us, we're going to work together to move forward. But you got to cast that vision so that everybody will see and can get on board. And then once you do that, expect opposition. We're going to face opposition. We're going to face opposition from around. We're going to face opposition from within. We're going to face opposition from within ourselves. Doubts and fears, uncertainties, all of these things. But then, even in the midst of opposition, you've got to be willing to take action, which they did. You've got to take action. You've got to move forward. Marie Antoinette, in 1770, she was getting married, and she was on her way to the palace to get married. And she ordered all of her subjects. She said, on the way, I want you to go ahead of the procession and I want you to get rid of everybody that's homeless, everybody that's sick, everybody that's disabled, anybody along the way that's sick or disabled or poor, I want you to get them out of the way. I don't want to see any of that 
on my way to my wedding. I'm going to get married. I do not want to be bothered. On my way to the palace, I do not want to be bothered by the brokenness of the city. So here was her philosophy. Leave the brokenness, go to the palace. What was Nehemiah's philosophy? I'm leaving the palace and I'm going to the brokenness. Yeah, we live pretty cushy lives, if we're honest, right? We're, we're pretty comfortable. Are we willing to leave the palace and go to the brokenness, to the people? We, we got to be willing to do that. But in order to do that first, we got to see the brokenness. Our eyes have to be open. We've got to become sensitive to the brokenness. In order to illustrate that, I've asked Timmy to help me this morning. You want to come on up, bud? Timmy's agreed to be my guinea pig this morning, so he's going to help me. Timmy, I've got in my pocket something I know you'll like. I've got a sucker, okay? Come over here where everybody can see you, all right? So Timmy's going to take this sucker, and just for a few seconds, he's going to put it in his mouth. That's if I can get it open. He's going to put it in his mouth, okay? Just put it in your mouth for just a second, all right? All right. Is it sweet? Tastes good? All right, give it back. You can't, you can't keep it right now. <laughs> all right, now, Timmy, we brought some ice. I'm going to give Timmy a piece of ice, and Timmy, you got to hold this ice in your mouth as long as you possibly can, all right? And then as, when you think you can't do it anymore, you're going to do it a few more seconds, okay? <laughs> all, right. all right, here you go. Put it in your mouth. Hold it in there. All the way in there. Hold it in there for a little while. Is it cold? Yeah, is your tongue starting to hurt a little bit? All right, you can move it around a little bit. All right. All right, now keep, come on, keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. You good? Is that about all you can do? All right, you think you can do it five more seconds? No, you can do five more seconds? All right, here you go. All right, now put the sucker back in your mouth. Can you taste the sucker? Not so much. It's not as sweet as it was before, is it? You know why? It's because your tongue is numb now because of the ice, right? All right, well, you can keep the sucker, but here's what Timmy illustrated for us, okay? The ice made his, num- his tongue numb to the sweetness of the sucker before you could taste it perfectly. And even if he could taste it a little bit, he couldn't taste it as well because of what the ice had done. You can go have a seat now, bud. Thank you. I'm afraid that we've become numb to the situation of the world around us. We've been living in the palace too long. We've become too comfortable, too accustomed. We've been inundated. We allow it in our living rooms. We allow it in our lives. We've been inundated with the culture, and we've become desensitized to the sin and the destruction all around us. Our hearts have got to be thought out. And that begins with understanding the seriousness of the situation and having a passion and allowing our hearts to be broken as Nehemiah's was, to be broken by the fact that, hey, I may be uncomfortable, the city may be broken, and yes, our hearts are broken for those people, but what should break our hearts the most is that the glory of God is in reproach that people are laughing at God because of the condition of his people. Our hearts have to be broken. We've got to look at the world around us. We need to ask ourselves, are we the kind of followers that God wants us to be? Do we have a burden for the work that God's called us to do? Are we willing to sacrifice to do that work, even if it means setting aside something that I hold dear, something that's good, if God calls me to leave that and to go do his work? Am I willing to sacrifice for his work? Are we gathering the facts? Are we looking at the situation so that we can can put together a plan under the leadership submission to the Lord and, and His leadership to address the situation? 
Do we enlist the help of other people? Are we trying to go it alone? We need each other. Are we motivating people on the basis of the spiritual, on what God is doing? Or are we trying to do it on the emotional or some other level? Do we recognize our need for each other? Because we do need each other. What kind of followers are we? Are we listening to our leaders as they share their burdens? Are we sharing their burdens with them? Do we have the same passion? Do we cling to the past? Or are we eager for God to do something new? Because he wants to do a new thing. The past is important. We're not going to just abandon it. We're going to learn from it. But I believe God wants to do a new thing. Are we eager for God to do something new? Are we willing to put our hands to the work once we see the need that God's called us? Are we willing to put our hands to the work? And are we cooperating? And here's, this is for myself, for everybody. Are we cooperating in any way with the enemy, which then would allow them to hinder the work that God wants to do in this place and through, through his people? Are we eager to be a part of the build. Anyone can go through life as a destroyer. Anybody can do that, but God's looking for builders, for people who want to do his work and build his kingdom. Just trace the so statements through these first through the, the first few chapters. So I prayed, Nehemiah said, chapter two, verse four. So I came to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He shared his heart. They said, let's get ready building. They strengthened their hands for the good work. So we built the wall. God did it. 52 days. Record time. The wall's built. We'll see. So we labored in the word. They got the city rebuilt. Then they began the rebuild of their hearts. And so the wall was finished. And by the wall being finished, not just the physical wall, but their hearts were rebuilt. Were it not for the dedication and determination of Nehemiah, his passion, his determination, his dedication, Nehemiah would never have have accepted the challenge or finished the work that God had called him to do. He had never seen this verse, but I have to believe the truth in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 was what drove Nehemiah. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Paul writes, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. If it's the Lord's work, your toil is not in vain. You know what that's about? That's about taking the cross of Christ to a broken city and facing the opposition, but doing it anyway, continuing the build because God's hands in it and he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. In Christ Jesus. No matter how difficult the task, no matter the opposition you face, be determined. As Dr. V. Raymond Edmond used to say, it's always too soon to quit. Don't give up. God's got a plan. Trust in Him. Do what He says. Follow His will. Face the opposition. Build His kingdom. And His word and His work will not return void. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us to be a part of your build. It's no mistake that you've gathered this group in this place for this time for your purpose. And I pray that we would all evaluate our lives, our lives, our jobs, our families, the ministries here, everything that we would evaluate who we are, what we're doing, and just ask, Lord, is it what we, you want us to do? And if so, 
How do we continue to build your kingdom here? How do we do your work? What do you want us to do? Well, we know in order for that to happen, two things. Our lives have to be in your hands. And Lord, if there's somebody here today who does not know you, who has not accepted your son Jesus, Jesus who has not accepted the free gift of salvation that you offer through your death and resurrection, if there's somebody here who does not know you, I pray that during this time of commitment they would come and allow me to share with them how to make that decision. Lord, if there's somebody else, some of us who know you, but Lord, we're, we've become desensitized or we're distracted or whatever from the work, whatever it is is keeping us from the work that you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that this would be a time of evaluation and a time of rededication as we seek your will together as your people and begin the work that you've called us to do. Lord, whatever it is that you're saying, I know that you're speaking to our hearts. Father, I pray that we would open up our hearts to hear your voice. And Lord, that we would respond in obedience, whether it's another decision public that needs to be made or if it's just something that we need to do right now in this time of invitation in our hearts as we communicate with you. Lord, help us to respond the way that you would have us to respond in your name because it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?